Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Economics, and probably New Books and Political Science, because this is interdisciplinary, and we're going to cross-post this. Not even sorry. Uh, my name is Sydney, uh, a host here on the channel, and today I'm talking with Hakan Yarlo, a uh, senior researcher here at Prio, the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, about a book he co-wrote uh, called One Road to Riches, and it's about sort of the... Um, state first versus democracy first narratives about how we come to sort of have prosperous societies. So hack on, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sydney. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's just get right down to it. How did you come to write this book? Sort of just tell me the story that like sort of makes this book, not just something that the publisher decided on, but like sort of why were the questions in an interesting, what is it that you sort of set out to accomplish? Sort of like, why, why, why is this book here? So um, this book, is it, it's been long in the making. It started, I started my PhD back in uh, 2014. And before that, I, no, sorry, 2015. And before that, I uh, worked at something called NORAD, which is the Norwegian Aid Agency. And uh, uh, the Norwegian Aid Agency or Norwegian Aid is very, uh, they care about these things like democratization and state capacity. They care about all these things. And and quite a, a prominent uh, or something that many people believed. And I think this is this goes for many in Norwegian society and possibly world society in general, is that for some countries, democracy is just not fit. It just doesn't work in, in, in those contexts. I've never been a huge fan of those types of uh, sentences, and I think we've proven that democracy does work uh, in a lot of areas around the world. But when I started my PhD, uh, I started to discuss this with uh, Karl Henrik Knudsen, which was my supervisor and one of the co-authors on this book, together with Tore Vig and uh, Matthew Wilson. Um, so, and we started to discuss this uh, this uh, democracy doesn't work uh, argument or, or notion, and. One of the kind of the credible type of uh, uh, theories that could support such a view would be this sequential arguments that it's not that it's it's an argument that some things have to be in place before you can introduce democracy or else democracy will fail in in various aspects and there are a lot of various types of uh, formulations of this theory but this this book project really started with uh, Fukuyama's uh, two volume work on political order uh, it's it's an amazing uh, book project that he, he published but there's uh, we had some reservations with part of the arguments and that kind of that sparked this uh, what which it sparked what was first a, a paper, but which grew into a book through uh, a series of robustness tests. <laughs> Fair enough. So the question is, is sort of clearly interesting, and I totally see why sort of like NORAD and other sort of actors in Norwegian society were interested in this. This is what got me to read the book, um, is sort of thinking about democratization and this path towards sort of like democ- towards how we come to live in sort of democratic societies. Um, but I must say, and this is probably a generational issue, and the fact that I like Amartya Sen. Um, but I was, as I was reading the first sort of half of the book, and you're describing sort of the, this sort of like state first hypothesis, which is just for our audience, this idea that sort of you need a state that is like strong before you introduce democracy, or sort of everything sort of goes crazy. And um, I almost felt like, and I'm, I'm not, I'm sure that in the literature more broadly this is not, but it felt to me like a straw man argument, entirely because sort of like. 
I, I listened to Sen sort of make fun of the Lee hypothesis, which again, for our audience, is this idea that sort of there are places in the world where you just need strongman rule to keep everything under order. It's sort of, I, I, I grown up in a generation who, for whom Francis Fukuyama, whatever his scholarly achievements must be, is essentially a meme, right? Like, um, right? He's the type of person you sort of like make fun of for neoliberalism, and you put up your notes, sort of like memes about the end of history. Like, I, I, it was it was hard for me to sort of see these arguments as 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 credible. Um, and so, could you walk us through again, sort of whether they are credible or not, sort of like who it is that believes them and sort of like why they believe them and just sort of like lay this landscape because there might be people in our audience who like me are in their early 20s and none of this has ever been has ever really sort of been a story they were willing to believe <laughs> so let's let's first <laughs> let's first uh, say that Fukuyama is, is a great thinker yes he is he he has great uh, opinions and, and thoughts on a huge variety of different social aspects right so so this is not to to attack him personally and in extension of that there there are several different variations of the same argument proposed by other authors so he's not like a one-man show with this theory um so how how prominent or how how many people really believe in this sequential theory it's difficult to answer i think I think you're right that in political science, this these are not uh, these are not hugely uh, believed in uh, people in general, but but I mean they do exist, and and I think perhaps even they they are even more prominent among, among non-scholars. So among so the 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 political order books, the two volume books by Foucault, was extremely popular, right? They were bestsellers. So there's a lot of people in the world who have who have read these books and uh, and uh, probably also believe those books, right? And there's much to believe in those books. There, like it's not it's not a dumb book. It's <laughs> it's 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 a great book. Um, so I I I really think that this I, I actually think this is a political science theory that has quite a lot of impact on policy and this is what ultimately guides me right this is human development we're talking about how should we spend our money when we're trying to to help the world getting to this great rich democratic society situation um, so and I, I think uh, this theory or, or the, the I'm not sure everyone has a well-formulated theory in their mind, but I think a lot of people have this general notion that democracy doesn't fit everywhere. And I think uh, the sequential theory uh, about democratization is one of the theories giving credible uh, credibility to that notion. So um, I, I, I find that, that sort of story compelling, just so that our audience doesn't necessarily think that I just think this book is arguing against a theory that doesn't exist. I have encountered this in my own life. Um, and one place that it actually really um, is prominent is sort of for Europeans or adopted Europeans like myself. Um, this actually is a lot of how we tell our own our history, right? It's sort of that actually, and this is, and there is something to the idea that in a lot of places we had strong states before we had democracy. Um, but the idea that this leads to sort of, this is, this is, it is this mechanism that causes us to have sort of these prosperous democratic states is something you challenge in the book with your two case studies. Um, so do you just want to sort of sketch out um, the case studies of, of Greece and Denmark and sort of the narratives that have been projected onto them? And before we talk about sort of how you, you tease out how to sort of methodologically understand your thesis, it's maybe might be nice to introduce the sketched out case studies. Um, yeah. Yeah, I... I... 
very much agree and uh, that the uh, a lot of the theories have have uh, been about European history and I do agree there's a lot like this is a very uh, fitting story for European society that they got strong states and then they uh, got democracy afterwards and then there's some variation in in exactly how that is like Germany is one example and and the other case study or the two case studies we have is is Denmark and Greece and Denmark, uh, so Denmark is, we use Denmark because that's uh, Fukuyama's uh, example of like an ideal society. So he calls it getting to Denmark, where uh, there's this hypothetical country, Denmark, which is a consolidated dem- uh, democracy, rich, and where people are relatively equal and, and happy, right? So that's where you want to get. Um, so then we, we so the, the case study is kind of lining out. So it's trying to uh, give a concrete example for for exactly what this theory argues, right? So it, it tells the story about Denmark, how it built its state, uh, the interaction between the in Denmark, the church and state, and how this eventually become became a, a centralized and well functioning bureaucracy um, that later uh, democratized and today is one of the absolutely happiest countries in the world uh, with a with a great economy. The other case study we have is Greece. And for those of us who remember the financial crisis of 2008, we remember there was a lot of bashing on, on Greece and the story of what a failed state Greece was that was unable to manage its finances, a huge debt, uh, got bankrupt. So uh, Greece is this counterexample of a country that democratized before it was able to create a, a professional and well-functioning bureaucracy, a centralized authority, um, that that could later democratize, right? So democracy, when it is introduced in those settings, it comes written with with corruption, where where politicians will use uh, public positions or stuff like that to win elections, uh, and there's no there's no kind of uh, there's no bureaucracy that is just professional and detached from kind of political dyna- dynamics, right? Um, now there are a lot of other differences between Denmark and Greece as well, and which we point out in the book, right? And I guess this is, uh, so we use those two examples. So uh, we did get some pushback on using those two examples exactly because they are so dissimilar in so many ways. I mean, Denmark was an empire that crumbled into what is today a very small state, but a very productive part of that old empire. While Greece was basically, uh, I'm not sure what, what I, words I can use on this podcast, but it's uh, it's had a hard time with neighbors. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, it uh, so there's a lot of different uh, aspects to the stories of these two these two nations, right? Uh, but they gave a face to the theory that we wanted to explain, and they gave us exactly the problem that we later uh, highlight even more that um, we think a lot of the evidence to this literature. Is uh, it's based a lot on case studies, and we believe that many of those case studies there's an impl- it's implicit that they can be compared when they cannot when we don't think they can, uh, and when we are trying to do this systematically, one of the things we find is exactly that it's very very difficult to identify what we in political science or in research call a proper counterfactual for a story. So it's difficult to find countries that are actually comparable that have different trajectories on this sequential theory. 
Um, and those two case studies help us highlight the many issues of kind of finding uh, finding the this comparison. But they are uh, case studies that are highlighted much in the literature. Uh, Denmark is, as I said, in Fukuyama, the, the ideal society. And right after he goes into Greece and how that's the exact opposite, right? He has a lot of other case studies as well, but uh, but they I think they 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 are nice summaries of the of kind of the two paths to uh, to democracy, one being the good path and the other being the bad path. Um, so before we get into it, because it really is the the second half of the book is empirical, and we will go through this in as simple as possible so that you don't have to turn this off. And then I promise we will come back because sort of in in sort of quantitative methodologies, there are some really fundamental questions about the way the world actually works. Um, but before we do this, I actually do want to take a second to plug the fact that there was a great book by Mark Mazower that just came out last year on the Greek Revolution. I have read it. It is excellent. So if you're actually interested in what the, the process of democratization in Greece looks like, not when political scientists sort of sketch it out in a case study, but sort of on its own terms, that is out there and it is actually excellent. Um, however, uh, to, to sort of do this comparison that you're talking about, right, where we want to compare Greece and Denmark. But we also know that Greece and Denmark are different for lots of different reasons. Um, essentially, what you do is you build what you actually put in quotes as. So instead, you have Denmark and then you have scare quotes Denmark. You have Greece and you have scare quotes Greece. And sort of the idea is to build the sort of like pseudo Denmark or pseudo Greece. Could you walk us through sort of like how that works, um, what it is that, that is sort of like at stake, what you're trying to accomplish, and then sort of like kind of what the basic finding from this approach is? Yeah, so this is a this is a method that, that is called uh, synthetic control, and the, I think the role it plays in this book is to kind of lay the, the as you say to try to make the statistical. It's a very heavy statistical book in the later parts, so it kind of lays the ground for what exactly is going on in those later uh, statistical parts. So, in a synthetic control, as you say, it's a method where we have Denmark, and Denmark at some point uh, democratizes. Um, and then we want to see what happens after that, right? And uh, we, in the case study, there's this implicit uh, comparison to Greece, but that's a comparison that doesn't really work because there's so many other differences. So we need a country that is more similar to Denmark, but uh, uh, but didn't democratize, right? Who, which had, uh, uh, yeah, that didn't democratize. But to do that, we're uh, instead of trying to identify a country that was pretty similar, we're asking uh, the statistical, like this statistical model, to construct a fake country, and it it does that through the through a what we call a combination of donor countries. So there's a lot of other countries in the data set that uh, donates <laughs> their information to this fake Denmark. Uh, which can construct then a, a country which is in reality a combination of uh, other countries uh, for the same timeline that uh, Denmark experienced democracy. And it tries to compare this real trajectory of Denmark to this fake trajectory of Denmark, but one that does not experience democratization. Right. So we want to see what did democratization do to Denmark if we compare it to a fake and as similar as possible Denmark. And then we do the same thing for Greece, right? So what we have then is a comparison of what did democracy do to Denmark and what did democracy do to Greece, right? But that's not really the answer to our question. 
because, and this is something we highlight in the beginning of the book, we're trying to tease out what exactly is this theory. Because we're not only interested in what democracy did in a situation where there was a good central authority and high state capacity, and we are not interested in only what democracy did in a country that did not have high state capacity. We are interested in the difference <laughs> between those two scenarios, right? So what's the what's the difference between the effect of democratization in the one instance to the effect of democratization in the other instance? This gets a bit technical, but it, it really is the difference in the impact of democratization in these two different scenarios that we are interested in. And what we can do with the synthetic control then in the in the opening is to show that uh, there is very little uh, difference to what democratization did in these two situations. And uh, it, ha- it helps us highlight the um, like cherry picking of, of, uh, of case studies. It helps us highlight that when we're doing this systematically, it's difficult to find any clear differences between these two uh, these two scenarios, and the, we generally doesn't don't don't find any huge effect uh, or any huge difference of what democratization does in these two scenarios. If I can highlight one more thing, which I think is is very uh, enlightening from that exercise in doing the synthetic control. So to do the synthetic control, it's it's not magic, right? It's restricted by what actually went on in world history. You, you can't just invent a fake country from nothing. And one of the things we really struggled with is to actually produce these fake countries, and especially uh, perhaps for Denmark, because most countries that were in uh, the same situation, or actually for both of these, it's extremely difficult to find countries that are well-functioning, what we call counterfactual, that, that can be this fake country. Um, because world history has simply not given us enough variation, right? So this this is you could say that this is one argument against our own book because we can't really because it's so difficult to find evidence. But the the burden of evidence really lies on the proponents of this theory, right? So they're the ones that that needs to prove that no, there are actually enough variation in world history to prove our theory, right? So our argument is our conclusion throughout the book, and which the synthetic control, I think nicely highlights is it's twofold it's one that this is a question which is extremely difficult to investigate empirically because of uh, world history and second given the empirics we have we we don't really find any uh, any impact like that there that there's any clear evidence of a necessary sequential steps here Yes, no, this is one of those infuriating things about scholarship, but really should be highlighted, is that this book actually is is rendering another theory or attempting to render another theory invalid or sort of saying there's no evidence for this versus putting forward the idea that actually like sort of a democracy first thing increases the, I believe the outcome you're using here is economic growth, but sort of, which which is important to highlight is sort of these are proxied by economic growth as prosperity indicators, um, which we can talk about towards the end when we're through the empirics. But it, it is really worth keeping in mind that this this book is is not is not saying there is empirical evidence for the democracy first thesis. What it is saying is that there's no evidence for the state first thesis. Um, I have one more sort of more technical question, and then we'll get to sort of some more conceptual things. But the second step, so you do a synthetic control, and the second step is to sort of generalize this into a type of regression analysis. Could you walk us through what that means? And then very broadly, sort of what you find, 
um, and then we'll move. Thank you. Yes. <clears throat> so, um, uh, yes, I agree. But first, to follow up on, on what we're concluding, yeah. So we're we're saying, I think state capacity good, and I think democracy is good. I just don't think you have to have one before the other. I just think both of them are good. <laughs> that's that's my belief in, in this. Yeah, so the regression analysis. So um, if we're thinking about the synthetic control, so one thing we're doing there. So first we do the synthetic control for Greece, and then we do it for Denmark, or we do it for those countries. And then we repeat the exact same procedure for all countries in our data set, right? So that gives us a synthetic control analysis for, for all countries, and we divide them by whether or not they had high state capacity at the point of democratization, right? So just for reference, the, the data here we're using is we're very much aligned on the historical varieties of democracy or varieties of democracy, which has a timeline going back to 1789. So our empirical data is uh, countries in the world since uh, 1789. Uh, and you're right, the outcome variable is, is GDP. Um, so a regression analysis, <clears throat> it tries to do it kind of tries to do the same thing. A regression analysis is a, a different way to try to um, construct a model that identifies the, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to say this in simple terms, the, 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 the causal effect of some variable. So in this case, the causal effect of democratization under different conditions of state capacity on economic growth. Right. So we're looking at whether uh, whether economic uh, democratization has any effect on economic growth in four years, two years, ten years, we differentiate like how how far in the future. Now we have you, we might discuss this even more, but without getting too de- technical, we're doing regression analysis in very uh, in various forms. <clears throat> so for the listeners who who are acquainted with this, we we do. First, a very clear uh, just panel uh, time series regression. Then we do a matching, coercive exact matching approach, and then we're doing a, a, what we call what's called a um, sequential type of analysis, where you where you regress in the sequences. Yeah. yeah. Oh, perfect. So, just as as a quick recap of sort of what these these things we're estimating are, essentially, you want to have. The question that you want is to know what the effect of democracy is, right? And so you pick an outcome, say economic growth, which I think is the outcome in this case, and you quite literally want to know, sort of like, as a guess, uh, had this place that is not a democracy been a democracy, how much growth or less, lack of growth would they have had? Or had this place that was a democracy and then got state capacity, how much growth would they have had? You quite literally sort of want to, in quite, like in a number, get a guess for how much they would sort of they would have had, and this sort of allows us to take this number and say something about our theory. However, for those of you who for whom that made no sense, we're done. I promise. <laughs> we will move on to sort of asking first what you think your findings mean, and then I will take this podcast off the rails because I have questions. <laughs> I, goes back to the the initial question right that we kind of wondered is is democracy not fit somewhere like is there countries in the world where democracy is not fit so i don't think that's true and i think the book highlights that at least this the sequential theory is not a good argument for why democracy does not fit somewhere right so i think we can uh, i'm pretty confident that we can debunk that idea now, there are other arguments other people could have for why democracy would not function somewhere. But if we're talking about like the, the real world consequences of this, it is that it 
I mean, it's not it's not bad if you try to focus on state capacity instead of democracy or democracy instead of state capacity. As I said, I think both of these things are very good. But we should be mindful that uh, a, a powerful dictator uh, with uh, a powerful bureaucracy, uh, there's the argument could be made that that's an even more dangerous dictator, right? Um, so, so democracy hopefully uh, restrains dictators or political leaders into using whatever they do. Uh, with care and uh, with the interest of the people in mind. So, um, yeah. Okay. Um, and so in the course of this uh, discussion, I have come up with a few questions, but I want to be completely fair to Hakan. I have not given him a chance to prepare for these questions. So if this podcast goes off the rails, I, I apologize to all of you. Um, so as you were sort of discussing this this sort of like state first democracy first sort of argument about the ways the sequential argument between where you get democracy and where you get the state and sort of the outcome here is economic growth and you do mention in the book that there could be other things um, but most of these are proxies for what someone living in Norway might think of as development and I, I sort of I thought about this a lot, and I set this intention with the findings that are that is pretty true that for most of human history, economic growth was not real. But and this is also important: had you asked someone, sort of an intellectual or someone on the street, sort of economic growth was also not a goal. And so I'm really interested if part of this state first then democracy leads to more economic growth hypothesis rests on the fact that for some reason or other the the sort of social structure that is the state actually makes people makes economic growth something that is I, I say desirable I don't necessarily mean it's desirable for everyone but sort of something that becomes a social imperative right that maybe in places that sort of don't have much of a state or don't have a state there are stateless societies and have been many in human history right sort of this was this was never a point and then all of a sudden you have this state and once you have a state it's very difficult to get rid of one and economic growth then becomes something that is that is that is that is necessary right so it could be actually that the, the process of having a state makes this outcome that we're treating as a proxy for good things actually desire or necessary where it might not have been and i'm really sorry if you're not prepared for that question because i i, I must emphasize to the audience this was not a prep question so my answer, I have a twofold answer. I think I, this is no problem. I think this is a very interesting uh, question, but I, I have to, I have a twofold answer. So first to answer your actual question. So is, uh, is GDP something that states were concerned about and, and the rest of the world were not? <clears throat> so um, I think if I, uh, to, to do the, the to, to go in, into attack first. I think neglecting economic growth, that's a very, that's something you can do when you're in a rich country, right? So if you're from really poor conditions, uh, telling poor people that, oh, they probably care about uh, other things that they are happy about. They probably don't want a luxurious life and, and stable income. They probably don't want that. They probably focus on uh, whatever, right? I think that's a, that's a very dubious uh, argument to, to make if, 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 if we're going that far. So even if you care about GDP or not, like the, the actual measure, nobody cares about the actual measure of GDP, but the GDP measure, it helps us or it correlates with a lot of things that we associate with a happy life, including reported happiness, right? So it's uh, there's a lot about GDP that we care about. So I'm pretty sure that 
even before like state and before the industrial revolution, people really cared whether or not, like how much crop did they actually grow in a given year, which is GDP, right? That, that is a part of uh, a part of economic productivity. So they, they care about these actual outcomes uh, very much, I think. And I think they did, even though they didn't have the measure. Now there, but, and here's my second answer. This is a criticism of our book is that, so um, if you are a proponent of the, uh, the sequential theory and, this includes uh, Fukuyama's book. <clears throat> they would say that we're simplifying it too much. Right? That uh, some would say that economic growth is a part of the sequence. So you have to get state, state capacity. Then you have to get economic growth, which creates specialization, it creates classes, and then you get um, get democracy, which can mobilize around these economic uh, issues. So that's an even more complex argument, right? Which uh, makes economic growth endogenous to the to the to the mechanism. And instead, in such a model, the outcome it's it's a bit less clear to me, but the outcome is kind of political instability in some ways. Like perhaps they mean the survivability of democracy, the amount of corruption. It varies a bit. So uh, there are the, the the argument could be made that we are kind of making a straw man because we're making the theory too simple. Uh, and that's true. And and to to those critics, I I guess I have kind of. I have three answers. The first answer is that I think we're giving at least a recipe for how we then could test more uh, complex versions of that uh, theory. Uh, my second answer, I thought told you it was three, but only have two answers. The second answer is uh, the second answer is that we already struggle a lot with finding good comparisons for the less complex version. Trying to find good comparisons in a more complex model. I, I mean, I say good luck. I, I don't think it'll happen, but good luck. <laughs> Fair enough. And my last question sort of rests, or my last sort of like book-related question rests on this kind of like finding comparisons issue. Because you mentioned in the book and in the discussion sort of that you really struggled to find, um, to find a comparison for Denmark. Um, and what I'm wondering is... Right, you're only we're only looking from 1800 to the present for completely genuine data reasons. There is no researcher out there who that I that I am aware of who's going to do this for like 2000 or for you know the year zero to the present. This is not this is not possible. So I understand this, but is it is it plausible that actually what we're looking at or that might what might be giving rise to this sort of like state led phenomenon is that this particular story kind of happened in certain places and it had something to do with the fact that. Being a state allowed you, with where there were other weak states, basically allowed you to pillage all of your all of what weren't your neighbors, but sort of other places, and sort of to do some growing wealthy, um, and then to, and then once you'd sort of acquired this wealth, democratization, of course it succeeded. You'd already had sort of a state capacity, and you were already sort of like wealthy because having this state had allowed you to sort of basically extract from other people. Um, is there is there something, and thus that that explains why there are no no comparisons for Denmark that go differently is because sort of a number of your European states um, had sort of this absolutist stage, and then they sort of expanded into colonizing other places on Earth. And this process sort of like just happened to happen in Europe. And there's nothing special about it. It's just this is this this happened. Um, is 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 it plausible that what we're looking at is? I know that that question rambled a little. Is it plausible that what we're looking at is in fact just something that happened to be the way that the, the cookie crumbled versus some sort of causal mechanism? 
so, so it sounded to me like you uh, this was a criticism of this uh, the sequential argument uh, and not of our us not finding any any counterfactual yeah, what I'm interested in is sort of just a discussion of the historical process and sort of maybe the macro reasons that there would be no comparison to Denmark, right? I think that that's not an accident. It's not because there's only 200 states. If there are 400 states on Earth, I still imagine we would struggle to find a case that is comparable to Denmark with the opposite the opposite phenomenon. I think that sort of there, there is a series of events that led all of the states that took this path to end up somewhere. And that series of events occurred in history. It did not sort of occur because there's some underlying mechanism that... that preordained the outcome so what you what uh, what you could say is that so it's difficult to find a comparison for Denmark exactly because the theory is right so if I try to make that argument it would be <clears throat> so in in Europe which uh, and generally there was high state capacity uh, we get the uh, uh, 1848 uh, revolutions and uh, eventually we, we move into into uh, democracy and the argument might be that in all situations where uh, which follows the correct uh, sequence of high state capacity and democracy, democracy always appears, and that's why it's difficult to find a comparison, right? Because there are no instances that doesn't democratize. So that might be the outcome variable. It's kind of the does democracy happen uh, happen here uh, argument. Um. So I mean the the. One country, one prominent country that that first didn't have the correct sequence was Germany, right? And, and we know uh, how that ended uh, with a with a huge war, etc. And then uh, I I don't remember exactly what the argument is about the case of Germany, but I think then the argument is that they they kind of got the state capacity and then democratized, right? So there's at least there's there has then has to be some argument that it's not like uh, it's it doesn't have to be instability forever if you don't have the correct sequence, <clears throat> but if this is true, then we should see uh, we should see that this holds outside of uh, Europe, right? And, and our book really does go for the world in general. And there are uh, other places in the world that have uh, had uh, correct or good kind of fertile ground for getting democracy, but where where it uh, where it didn't happen. This is kind of a construct of our model as well, because we don't want to we can't we deny the model of comparing for example uh, um, uh, sorry Denmark in the 1800s with some very well state func well functioning uh, country today right there's there's too much difference in time for us to compare those two so there are different versions we do this model but generally we're trying to restrict it in both time and space so that we we can't really compare like United States uh, in Declaration of Independence and eventually Constitution with China today. Right. All right, fair enough. And as we're getting towards the end of our interview, I'm going to ask you sort of, I always ask for a reading recommendation for our audience. Is there something you're reading or something that you sort of like want to give a shout out to or recommend to our audience? <clears throat> yeah, I've recently read um, Michael K. Miller's. He has a new book, Shock to the System coups, elections, and uh, war on the road to democratization. And it's a very, uh, I found it very, it's a very good book. It's about um, the role of, or how do we get to democratization uh, and the role of these huge shocks and instability to to uh, autocratic stability that, that creates the democratization. It, it 
it summarizes a, good, a lot of the theories we have and it, put it puts it into what I would say is a, kind of a new framework for, for thinking about this uh, process of democratization. And I've, I've been uh, pondering a lot about the arguments since I read it. So it's a good book. Awesome. And I can echo, echo, echo. I can echo that our recommendation because I've seen him uh, present this book and it really is, is, is quite, quite compelling. Um, and then finally, do you want to tell us something you're working on next? Yes, yeah, so right now I'm, I have a project on Zambia um, where we're trying to uh, provide a data set which has all of the political elites, like all the politicians, every candidate for elections, all the ministers, all the judges, court rulings, uh, parliamentary speeches. We're trying to get a, a data set of Zambia that would allow us to do similar type of analysis that has been done on, on all like consolidated democracies in Europe, which has all tons of information. It's difficult to find uh, tons of information on um, most African states, uh, basically, and also Asian uh, states. And uh, it's difficult to find similar uh, data on countries that are not consolidated democracies, but are in this in-between category where nobody really knows if they're a democracy or not. Uh, so that's a very exciting project. I'm looking forward to doing some uh, yeah, in-depth analysis on how the political careers and incentives of politicians in Zambia is. Awesome. Well, you'll have to come back on when you've got another book about that. Um, anyways, the book is One Road to Riches. I think you can find it at Cambridge's website. I highly recommend it. It's 100 pages. It's a quick read. It's got a lot of sort of really interesting insights and some real empirical backing to, to um, what is, in fact, a, a really important set of questions. So um, anyways, thank you very much for being here, and I'll catch you on the other side.